Welcome to this episode of the Atlas Society Asks. We'll get started in three, two, one. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 20th episode of the Atlas Society Asks. Today, we are joined by a dear friend, I've known him for about 30 years, uh, Justice Clint Bullock. And um, man hardly needs any reputation. I know a lot of you know and admire him as do I. Uh, but before I even get into introducing Clint, um, I wanna remind you, we are actually live on YouTube and you guys have been a great engaged audience. So you can ask your questions on the live YouTube um, stream or if you're joining us uh, via Zoom. I think we have a record number of attendees. Um, you can just type in your questions into the Q&A uh, section and we'll try to get to as many of them as possible. Uh, so please keep them short and also be mindful that obviously uh, Justice Bullock can't um, address any uh, issues that are pending before the court or um, that are you know constitutional uh, in, in nature. So um, Clint Bullock, Justice Clint Bullock was appointed to the Arizona Supreme Court in 2016. Justice Bullock co-founded the Institute of Justice uh, back in 1991. That's from when we knew each other. Um, that uh, Institute for Justice is a nonprofit law firm that litigates to limit government power, especially when it comes to property rights, economic liberty, and free speech. Uh, Justice, Justice Bullock is widely known for his support of school choice. He's written uh, a number of books, including David's Hammer, The Case for an Activist Judiciary, uh, Death Grip, Loosening the Law's Stranglehold on Economic Liberty, and apparently he's uh, got an upcoming book that we're eager to hear about. Um, Welcome again. Oh, it's great to see you, Jennifer, if only virtually, unfortunately. <laughs> yes, I know. I think we saw each other last in person last year, and my goodness, um, so much has happened since then. I know you've been keeping uh, awfully busy. Tell us maybe a little bit about this, uh, this book that you've got uh, coming up. Well, it's with a wonderful young co-author, Kate Hardiman. Um, and uh, the name of the book is Unshackled. Uh, and it, basically what it does is it explores uh, the idea of what, uh, how we would create a school system today, starting from scratch with no preconceptions. Would it look anything like the ossified, monopolistic, top-down, bureaucratic, special interest dominated, I could go on and on, system that we have today. And of course the answer is, is no, we have the, the technology to provide a highly individualized education to every child in America. And uh, unfortunately we're, we're within the strictures of a system that doesn't enable us to do that. That is spectacular because you, know, you and I have, have long been in uh, the trenches in terms of opposing a government monopoly on um, education. I, I worked on that when I was director of education policy uh, at the Cato Institute. Um, but you know, it's one thing to be opposed, but it's another thing to re-envision uh, what 
is possible. So I think once you uh, get that book out, I would love to, first of all, I'd love to have it as the subject of our um, book club that we have for our students, but also maybe we'll get a special um, autographed copy over to this year's uh, honoree of our gala, Peter Diamandis, because, you know, he really is about, I think he started the X Prize um, in, in part because he said, you know, space flight is too important to leave it solely up to the government, you know, that we need to get the private sector involved, we need to get innovators um, involved. So I will be looking forward to that. Well, thank you. Um, and again, I want to remind you guys, this is an incredible opportunity. So please um, ask your questions. I get to start out with a question that I usually, you know, sort of save it to the end or I don't even get to ask it because, you know, not everybody that we have on the show are um, that familiar with Ayn Rand or, or objectivists necessarily. Um, but Clint was um, influenced by Atlas Shrugged. So tell us your, your origin story, if you will. <laughs> you know, how old were you when you read it? How did you get introduced to it? And how does it, you know, influence your work throughout your career and today? Well, uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, encounter it in college. And like so many college students, I was just a, a, a bundle of contradictions. Um, and reading the book really helped me sort out my views, my values. Uh, not only did it, uh, did it lead me to challenge my own internal contradictions, but it also um, convinced me that some of the things that I thought were contradictions were not contradictions, that there was an overarching philosophy, a philosophy of freedom, of individual uh, liberty, that really pulled them all together. And so it was an incredibly influential book. Um, I went on to offer uh, each of my four kids um, $250 uh, as teens if they would read it. So far, two of the four have taken me up on it and uh, I'm very, very proud of them. But you know, I, I suspect that many of your viewers who have read Atlas Shrugged find it, even though it was written the very same year I was born, uh, uh, it, it is more and more relevant with every year that passes. Ayn Rand was incredibly prescient. And you know, in, in the book, uh, obviously the government is operating under emergency decree. We never quite find out where it came from, why it started, uh, but it seems of an infinite duration. And, here we are in a series of, of emergency decrees at the local level, the national level, internationally. Um, and uh, I find myself uh, uh, wondering sometimes uh, about uh, these powers and uh, uh, Rand was so far ahead of her time in imagining this and imagining some of the things that could happen in that sort of situation if we are not bound by the rule of, of law and some very, very basic core principles. Yes, and she celebrated, you know, entrepreneurs. And I think that is, you fought for all different kinds of entrepreneurs throughout your career. Um, it's not just, you know, the people that are uh, running railroads. It's the people that are just really trying to get a leg up and, and start something on, 
their own, but they are being bogged down by licensing laws and by crony capitalism, really. Um, so I, I think it's, it's, a, it's a cautionary tale about the limits of uh, government and bureaucracy, but it's also a tribute to the kinds of people um, that you have fought for all of your life. Someone else who talks about um, um, licensing laws and things like that was last uh, week's guest, um, your friend, Christina Sandfer. And she told me something uh, that I didn't know about you. I knew that Christina has, um, <laughs> she's an objectivist and that she has a dollar sign uh, tattooed on her ankle. And then I said, well, you'll have to ask Clint about his tattoo. So. Uh, is it something that you can show us? And it is. It is actually something that I can show. I, I always have thought if you're going to get inked, you may as well do it in a visible way. So uh, when I was working with Christina at the Goldwater Institute, we represented a tattoo studio um, whose use permit, after they had invested all sorts of money, um, was taken away at the behest of neighbors that would have preferred to have a Starbucks there. And uh, so we fought for them and ultimately we, we prevailed and they were able to, to get back to their business. But along the way, when you do these kinds of cases, you get very, very personally involved in your client's plight. Their plight becomes your plight. Uh, their, their ambition becomes your ambition. I thought to myself, you know what? If we win, I'm gonna get inked. So uh, I, we did win, uh, I did get inked, and, I, and after thinking it over, I have typed every book, every brief, every court opinion I've ever typed in my entire career with one finger, uh, my right index finger. So I got a little desert creature, uh, a scorpion with a powerful sting on my, on my index finger. Uh, and I have to be careful which finger I raise, right? Right, right. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but he's been there for, for quite some time and uh, just is symbolic of, of the David versus Goliath uh, uh, efforts that my colleagues and I over the years have been engaged in. Well, I, I love that. I'm not going to get inked, except maybe like eyeliner ink or something. But, um, but if I, it would be a hard toss up because um, I, we have a lot of scorpions here in Malibu. In fact, when I rebuilt my house after uh, the, the fires of 07, I, I call it Scorpius, which is a, is a kind of a tribute to um, the power, the power of nature, you know, Francis Bacon, nature to be commanded must be obeyed. So uh, I love that, that's adorable. Um, all right, so we are gonna, uh, we have, Plenty of questions, um, and I um, think I could probably uh, anticipate some of them. Obviously, right now, I mean, the news cycle—it's just like it's totally uh, chaotic, and so much is happening every single day. But there, you know, a, a lot of what we are um, dealing with right now is this huge controversy um, about the uh, nominee. You know, we had this vacancy in the Supreme Court and uh, a lot of debate about whether or not it should be filled or not filled. And so much, you know, uh, seems to, to ride on it. I mean, people that are even maybe not supportive of, of this candidate or that candidate, they don't like him or whatever, 
they they are just kind of very very focused on the Supreme Court. So why have um, Supreme Court confirmations uh, become so controversial? Were they always were they always this way? Well, to an extent, they've always been controversial. Certainly, a number of presidents tried to pack the court with minions that would support their policies, starting with Abraham Lincoln, FDR, uh, Richard Nixon. Uh, but really, the reason why they're so important today is because of the breathtaking growth of power uh, in government at every level. And it really falls to the Supreme Court, and this was the role that the framers anticipated for the courts, to hold the other branches of government within their assigned uh, limits. And that need grows constantly, unfortunately. So uh, that's why the stakes are so incredibly high. The other thing uh, that makes the stakes higher than ever before is that lifetime tenure, which the, the framers and their brilliance bestowed upon the federal judiciary, it really didn't mean all that much when uh, the Constitution was adopted. The average age of a Supreme Court justice was low uh, was higher than the average age of death so the wow. moment you would expect that the moment someone was appointed pretty pretty quickly they would pass away today of course that is very very different nominees are being appointed at a younger age they're living to an older age as a result the average tenure of a supreme court justice is over 30 years until recently with justice kennedy we still had a justice appointed by President Ronald Reagan. This court, uh, every now and then they, they make a, a, a decision that uh, is, is questionable, but I have to say that this is probably the first, the most pro-free speech court we've ever had in, in history. It's one of the most pro-private property rights uh, courts. Uh, and this court uh, has been steadily reducing uh, the, the scope of, of the federal government, at least, uh, moving it back to its constitutionally bounded intention. I'm really pleased to hear that um, because you just touched on two topics that we consider so important at the Out Society that um, we have two upcoming uh, Draw My Lives. One is My Name is Free Speech and one is My Name is Property. And you, we are looking at the threats, um, some of which are legal, some of which are, you know, cultural. Uh, but I, I appreciate that perspective because, you know, it's very easy to get into a complete, you know, everything is going to hell in a handbasket kind of way. But, you know, if you really focus also on uh, too much on the negative, it's what you tend to go towards. So. Um, so that's encouraging. Maybe we'll have you back to talk about that when we uh, when we launch. Um, but yeah, so more broadly, uh, Clint, um, tell us a little bit more about uh, why your um, what is your jurisprudential uh, philosophy, textualism, uh, and why you had mentioned before that you uh, on in your current role as an Arizona Supreme Court justice that you find yourself, you know, in, in the dissenting minority too often. So what is it about uh, your perspective that, you know, is, is, is unique and, and different from your, your peers, not even necessarily on the court, but also maybe even within uh, the, the liberty, liberty movement? 
Well, uh, actually, I think probably most people within the liberty movement, you know, to the extent they have a judicial philosophy, it is generally uh, textualism. And that is the belief that uh, the court ought to interpret the Constitution and statutes uh, according to the words uh, as, as they were defined at the time of the adoption. Um, and this is in stark contrast with the, the philosophy of a, of a living constitution. Of course, our constitution is living, but, but the adherents of that view believe that the constitution changes with the times, it changes with realities. And, and we had a period in American history where the court uh, was dramatically expanding the power of government uh, because it thought it was necessary uh, to, to have those broader government powers, starting in the New Deal, going through the, the Great Society and, and so forth. Um, ours is a constitution of liberty. It's a constitution of defined and limited government powers. Um, and so uh, a justice, a judge who believes in a textualist philosophy will often find uh, that the constitution protects individual rights uh, and constrains government power. Less so when you're interpreting statutes because statutes often by their nature are uh, exercises of government power. Um, that sometimes leads judges to results that they don't particularly agree with. Uh, uh, Justice Gorsuch, who is uh, a, a very, very uh, serious textualist, um, said at his confirmation hearings that uh, a judge who agrees with all of his or her decisions is probably not a very good judge. But nonetheless, um, we view, textualists view the Constitution as a contract. Uh, it is the, the people giving up a, a certain measure of their rights in return for the benefits that government can provide. And just like any contract, it should be uh, enforced according to its terms, according to the intentions of, of those who put it together. And uh, anything beyond that makes the judiciary uh, either a, a part of the legislative branch or, or the executive branch. And, that is uh, a recipe for tyranny. Um, so we're going to get to some of our uh, audience questions, and and we still we have a lot of time. So everyone, um, please ask your questions on YouTube uh, and in Zoom, and we will get to them. Um, some of you though might not be aware of an article that George Will wrote about a recent uh, opinion that Justice Bullock authored, a portion of which uh, was critical of the presumption of constitutionality. Can you tell us how this presumption is detrimental? So basically anytime someone goes to court and challenges a law, challenges a, a, a regulation or an exercise of government authority, the courts begin with a presumption that that exercise of government power is constitutional. And that is very, very deeply embedded in our American jurisprudence. Um, just because something is a well-established idea 
does not necessarily mean that it's a, it's a good idea. And in fact, the Arizona Constitution begins with the words that a, uh, a frequent recurrence to, to principles is necessary for uh, uh, the endurance of freedom. And I'm paraphrasing there, <laughs> but uh, in any event, um, looking at this presumption of constitutional, uh, constitutionality, I concluded that this really uh, creates an unlevel playing field for people who go uh, to court to challenge laws that there should be no presumption of constitutionality. And uh, so in, a, in an opinion that did strike down uh, a, a law uh, that made um, gang membership uh, punishable separately from a, a crime that was committed uh, uh, by a gang member, I wrote that we should no longer indulge in the presumption of constitutionality. I think that it's the first opinion uh, uh, articulating that view. It was joined by one of my colleagues and I've been really gratified uh, by the, the response uh, from the, the Volokh conspiracy and, the, uh, and, and George Will and, and others. Uh, so hopefully this will spark some uh, some thought and perhaps uh, courts will begin to reassess whether we should begin uh, a, a case against the government uh, with a finger on the scales of justice. So you mentioned um, some words, a paraphrase from the uh, preamble to the um, constitution of your state of Arizona. Why we were so focused, as we mentioned before, on uh, the Supreme Court. It's like the only thing we seem to be focused on. Um, why do you think that state constitutions are are important? And also, how much do they really uh, differ from each other? Well, they differ greatly. And one thing that they have in common is that every single state constitution contains greater protections of individual rights and greater constraints on government power than does the national constitution. And as, uh, as state courts, we are free to uh, interpret our own constitutions to provide greater protection of liberty than the uh, national constitution is held to provide, but not less. I call it a one-way ratchet because, or a freedom ratchet because courts in the states can only protect greater liberty, not, not less. And uh, these constitutions are chock full of provisions uh, that freedom lovers would, would absolutely adore. For example, the national constitution does not have a privacy guarantee. Most state constitutions do. Uh, many state constitutions include a provision that prohibits gifts of public funds by subsidy or otherwise to private individuals, uh, corporations, or associations. You mentioned uh, corporate welfare before. They were designed to prevent that. I could literally go on and on. Uh, Anti-monopoly clauses that are uh, directed not at private corporations, but at the government. Um, and these provisions uh, are, are available to the citizens to protect their rights, especially now that we're divided into red and blue America. Um, this is a really important facet of federalism where individuals, uh, individual courts and individual states 
uh, can provide liberties that, you know, whether, whether in the sphere of gun ownership or uh, even abortion rights, um, depending on your own, your own philosophy regarding those particular types of rights, they can go in their, their own direction, again, so long as they provide greater freedom rather than less. So we got one uh, surprise from you in this interview, which was your, uh, your inked, your scorpion uh, tattoo. And um, in preparing for the interview, I learned there was another surprise, which probably, uh -oh. you know, get some people angry. And we have to do that, because like, if we're not getting some people angry at the Atlas Society, we're not doing a good enough uh, job. So you sued Donald Trump. What, what, when, what, explain yourself. <laughs> so a lot of your viewers will be familiar with the concept of eminent domain, where the government uh, can take private property with just compensation for a public use to build roads, uh, to build, um, uh, to build schools, hospitals, and so forth. Well, in, in the 1990s, a casino developer in my home state of New Jersey Donald J. Trump decided that he needed to build a parking lot for his limousines adjacent to his casino. And uh, the property owners, which consisted of an elderly widow uh, named Vera Koking, who wanted to live out her life in the house that she owned, a little gold and silver shop and an Italian restaurant called Sabatini's, they didn't want to sell. Um, and, you know, anyone from New Jersey knows how seriously we take our Italian restaurants. Uh, so this, this was uh, a pretty significant uh, uh, dispute. Uh, Trump said, listen, it's fine. You don't want to sell to me. I will go to the city of Atlantic City and they will use their eminent domain powers uh, to take the property and sell it to me. And that's exactly what Atlantic City attempted to do. Uh, saying that the public purpose is what's good for casinos is good for Atlantic City. And so my colleagues uh, then at the Institute for Justice and I filed uh, a legal action to prevent Donald Trump. Uh, the back, this is the backdrop to one of the most infamous cases in uh, U.S. constitutional history, the Kelo case, in which the U.S. Supreme Court held that eminent domain could be used to benefit a private corporation. There, an entire working class neighborhood was bulldozed. Uh, and the US Supreme Court upheld that saying, you know, the, the words of the constitution are public use, but we really think it means public benefit. And so long as there's a public benefit, we're gonna let you do that. But in New Jersey, the New Jersey courts applying their own constitution said, this is not going to work. This is not a public use. We're not going to let Donald Trump take this property. And so uh, Mrs. Koking got to live the rest of her life uh, in her home. And Sabatini's continued selling phenomenal uh, Italian dinners uh, for, for many, many years. And uh, Donald Trump uh, had a happy ending as well. He got elected president of the United States. Well, that answers another big question that I had, which is why you haven't yet been nominated to the uh, 
court of the United States. <laughs> well, I'm so, sure there are many reasons for that, but but suing <laughs> Donald Trump is probably one of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably, yeah didn't, didn't help much. Okay, so speaking of some of your decisions, we've got a question here from Richard Morris, and you might not be able to speak to all of this. He, he all of this he says in state uh, versus um, our our Velo. Uh, your concurring opinion at paragraph 30. Wow, there's some serious uh, Clint Bullock followers here. You wrote something that uh, he has been advocating since law school in the mid 1960s. You said that um, a law that diminishes liberty is in unconstitutional. The scales are tipped by the presumption of constitutionality. Um, this is a monumental change. How do you see that playing out? Well, and uh, Jennifer, that's exactly the case that, uh, that I was talking about a few minutes ago. Um, uh, State versus Arvalo. Um, and I, you know, the way I hope it, it, it uh, plays out, and I really appreciate the question, by the way, is um, that it will introduce some foment uh, that when litigants go to court, uh, challenging government power as unconstitutional, that they'll cite that decision and cite the sources that I uh, cited for that decision and begin the conversation about whether we really ought to have an unbalanced set of scales of justice when it comes to individuals challenging unconstitutional government power. Okay, great. We have um, a question here from uh, Vicki, if I can essentially paraphrase what she's asking. You know, the Atlas Society works a lot with uh, colleges and high schools and, uh, you know, we are, the students that are involved with us are really um, feeling very alienated and uh, kind of under you know, indoctrination and a, attack from um, their professors in the humanities. And so she wants to know, um, do, is, is that different in, in the law schools? I mean, is there the same amount of bias, you know, that we tend to see in um, undergraduate art? Is that an issue uh, also in law schools? You know, just as it depends, um, on the, on the particular undergraduate institution, it depends in law schools as well. Um, you know, my, my son who is a, a, a fan of, of the Atlas Society um, is at ASU, Arizona State University. They've got a, a fantastic reputation for civil discourse. Um, uh, the University of Chicago um, has attracted a lot of attention for uh, putting forth principles of, of free speech and, and really holding to them. Other colleges, not so much. And uh, you can get in serious trouble uh, for expressing the, the wrong views and, and how sad that is. You know, there's a, a concept in First Amendment law, the chilling effect. Uh, it's not necessarily suppressing speech, but making speech so unwelcome that, that you simply don't say what's on your mind. And that's, uh, I, I teach a, a class at ASU Law School. I teach constitutional law and I encourage my students, I don't care what your view is, please articulate it. That's how you sharpen yourself. Um, some law schools, I, I went to the University of California at Davis for law school. It was an extremely hostile law school. 
uh, ideologically. I used to joke that you were free to express any viewpoint along the spectrum from uh, Maoist to Trotskyite. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know what? It made me a much more effective advocate. It made me sharpen and hone my own viewpoints. And by the time I graduated from, from law school, I was ready to start suing government bureaucrats. In fact, I sued my law school while I was a student. Oh, so, uh, you know, I, I, I think we should just, you know, for those who are in those um, situations, um, you know, just use it as a learning experience. Um, the, the students who all sit around uh, agreeing with each other and, um, mouthing, uh, uh, to use the word that Rand would use, bromides that, um, that really have no thought behind them, they are really not being well served by their, their educational institution because they'll never be able to develop critical thinking skills. Um, conservative students, libertarian students, objectivist students, boy, they are, they are getting a, a, a real education and, uh, you know, that's, uh, you, you, there is life after college, there is life after law school. Uh, and one thing I, I should say to put in a plug for an organization that's just really changed the dynamics, uh, the Federalist Society in law schools, it, it, it got started right after I graduated, <laughs> much to my chagrin, I would have loved to have had it. Um, but the Libertarian, uh, the, the Federalist Society is basically a, a, a debating society within the law schools, but it's a safe place for people to exchange ideas um, and to argue with each other in, uh, uh, in free debate. And that is the sort of organization that I think we need to see more of in undergraduate institutions as well. Absolutely. <clears throat> I was introduced to the Federalist Society by um, one of my old friends and a colleague from the Bush 41 uh, White House is uh, C. Boyden Gray, someone you also know very, very well. Um, and exactly. uh, it's done tremendous, tremendous work. We should actually have uh, Boyden on, on this uh, webinar. Um, and I, I really, what you say resonates with me, but I also think uh, it resonates as well as somebody who grew up in Massachusetts. And it's I, always interesting to me that some of the, um, the kind of strongest um, most dedicated, most confident, uh, and fearless libertarians, conservatives, uh, objectivists, they, they come from Massachusetts or Canada. <laughs> so it's, it's like, you know, we have Peter Copsis, who was our trustee, and Stephen Hicks, of course, and uh, both from Canada, Chip uh, Wilson from Canada. Uh, we definitely have an over-representation, over but it's, it's kind of like the... Um, you know, the diamond, you don't get a diamond unless uh, you're, you really are able to endure a lot of um, pressure, which is also one of the things, you know, we may not have control directly over, you know, our, what's going on at our university or our law school, but for each of us, uh, certainly as objectivists, we have control over um, the kinds of attitudes that, uh, that we adopt, which is why, you know, at the Atlas Society in particular, since we were founded by David Kelly, we really believe that uh, debate and dissent uh, is essential and toleration is just a essential virtue 
uh, that we, we we need to like practice it with people at first that just agree with us on 90%, but then also, you know, practice it uh, with the people that completely, you know, disagree with you on, on everything. So yeah, I, I my, my, my son, Ryan uh, at ASU, he, he literally goes out of his way. If he, if he sees a socialist booth or, you know, someone handing out things, he immediately goes up to them and, and engages them and starts asking them questions. Why do you support socialism? And, and going on from there and often finds that none of, that most of these people have never had their views challenged. And, uh, you know, I, I, that, that harkens back to what I said about my own experience with Atlas Shrugged. What I think most people love most about that book is that it challenges their foundations. And that's exhilarating. It's, it's a part of the maturation process. It's a part of developing your own moral code and uh, uh, challenging people who hold these, these, uh, these views uh, like socialism or communism. Uh, you know, I think, I think that's part of our mission in life. Absolutely. Um, all right, we have another question. I, did, I didn't know this. Maybe you can confirm. Uh, Brandon says that you at one point ran as a libertarian long ago. That's <laughs> yes, that is absolutely right. When I was in law school, uh, learning how to be a dissenter, mm -hmm. um, it was one of the first years that uh, the Libertarian Party was on the ballot. Um, I ran for the state legislature in California. Uh, and I won 7.1% of the vote, which is pretty darn good for a libertarian candidate. That year, the ticket was headed by the great Ed Clark, um, just a, a phenomenal uh, advocate for uh, libertarian ideals. And uh, he was called the, the reasonable radical, which, uh, which I think we all, all should be in a certain sense. Um, but it was really great, um, a great experience. It helped me learn how to articulate and defend my ideas verbally. Um, but beyond that, um, it also got politics out of my blood. And uh, so I focused thereafter, not on the political arena. And I'm very, very thankful that my wife, Shauna, is an elected official. She's a, a member of the Arizona State Legislature but I feel f much more at home uh, in the in the legal arena. Well, so there's a follow-up uh, that Brandon asks, which given the last part of your answer, you probably uh, will not have an answer to, um, when you said that people that care about freedom, should they seek office as a Republican or Libertarian today? You know, Brandon, I'd say that you seek office as a Democrat. We need more um, people <laughs> in all parties. <laughs> you might you know, not get very far. You might not get the nomination. <laughs> I, I just think that um, find your own niche. Find what you love and what you're good at. Uh, that combination is, is absolutely unbeatable. And if it's the electoral arena, um, you know, I would never give someone advice as to which party um, to run in. My, my son, I keep uh, referring back to him, but he has an online petition to allow uh, candidates other than the Republicans and Democrats to get into the national debates. Um, so uh, he, he has one foot in the Republican camp and one foot in the Libertarian camp right now. I've been a political independent uh, since 
2003, um, and I've I I never felt so liberated by that uh, by that choice. I never have to defend my party because I don't have one. But that's you know that's a a, a deeply intimate decision that people have to make for themselves. And I, I, uh, I just hope that uh, everyone listening to this will uh, take their skill set um, and put it to, to very good use, even if it means just making millions and millions of dollars and uh, contributing to uh, very effective nonprofits. That's a great way to, to affect the world as well. I would totally second that. I have no, I you know, no bias, no ideas, you know, of which uh, nonprofit you should donate to. Although I didn't think that our chairman is matching all new donations to the Atlas Society this year. So yeah. Um, okay. So this is more of a general question um, from uh, Vicky. She wants to know about. The issue of legislating from the bench, what are the problems? And maybe even to start, like, you know, that's a phrase we throw, we hear thrown around, like what, what does it mean? So I, uh, Vicki, thank you for that question. Um, uh, the, the framers, when they put together an independent judiciary, they, they uh, said in Federalist number 78 and Marbury versus Madison that we need an independent judiciary to hold the other two uh, branches of government to their assigned uh, boundaries of power. Uh, but we, and, and we have nothing to fear from the judiciary doing that, but we would have everything to fear if ever the judiciary exercised executive powers or uh, legislative powers. And so for example, when a law is, when, when a court decides to strike down a law, that's what it should do. It should strike down the law uh, and then the legislature gets to decide what's in its place. But so often, uh, and, and I, I uh, was teaching um, in my class the last couple of sessions on, on Roe versus Wade, uh, regardless of what you think of, of the right to an abortion, Roe versus Wade did exactly that, striking down laws uh, restricting abortion, and then went on to write a law of its own, saying that we're going to have a trimester system, and in this first part, uh, the, the woman's rights are sacrosanct, and in the latter part, the state's rights are sacrosanct, and in the middle, it's kind of, uh, kind of amorphous. Uh, same thing with Miranda, uh, the Miranda case, where uh, uh, basically the Supreme Court uh, ruled what police officers had to say. Um, and those are, uh, you have, you know, forced busing for, for integration. You had courts creating racial quotas, on and on. The list can go on and on. And that's not the role of, of courts. Uh, and when the courts get into that arena, um, uh, they really politicize uh, the branch. No one, you know, no one votes for federal judges. And uh, it's, it's uh, a horrible violation of the separation of powers and results in an erosion of liberty rather than um, uh, protecting the rights, which is uh, the assignment of the judicial branch. All right. Well, I think we have time for maybe two more questions. And we've got a question here from Fossilized Dodo and Fossilized Dodo. You get the prize for the weirdest screen name, which in my book, by the way, is a compliment because I'm a big weirdo and I like weirdos. Um, 
And this is actually kind of speaks to uh, the point that, that Justice um, Bullock was just making. He says, how much power should the states have over their localities? So kind of like the federal powers over the states. Uh, could you say that sometimes there are scenarios where the all-powerful state, I guess he means by that the, you know, uh, state as in, this, you know, the various states uh, where the, the all-powerful state can crush rights? Oh, unquestionably. And I, I'm not sure I totally understand the question. Um, the, your first articulation of it made me think of the relationship between state governments and local governments. Um, and to the extent that that's uh, th the question that's being asked, the states are the organic uh, units of government in our society. Local governments are creatures of the state. And, um, uh, and of course, both of them are subject uh, to the US constitution and the states uh, subject to the state constitutions as, as well. I've written extensively over the years about the phenomenon of grassroots tyranny where local governments, which really regulate the most intimate details of our lives from where our kids go to school to, um, uh, to uh, what our streets and neighborhoods look like, et cetera, et cetera, our, our police departments, uh, we pay so much attention to national elections and almost none to local elections and, uh, and holding local officials to the limits of their power. So I, I, I apologize if I've misfired on this question, um, but I think that we need to be alert and our constitution is alert uh, to deprivations of liberty uh, by government, no matter, no matter what level of government. All right, we're going to take this last question, which is kind of uh, an, an open-ended question um, from Doug, Greg Dulgoff, who says, um, I cannot be born and stay on land and never leave and grow my own food. There is no freedom. Uh, I cannot stay on land uh, unless I pay taxes. Um, but mm. uh, yeah, he's just kind of saying that he feels like there is no Freedom, and it's it also speaks to an interesting question that comes up time to time within the liberty movement about uh, about taxes. And um, you know, we we have uh, libertarians who say taxation is theft, um, and of course the the uh, the federal income tax is a relatively new uh, imposition. Um, but uh, but Ayn Rand you know, for one, um, she, she envisioned a system of voluntary taxation, but I, 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 she was not an anarchist. So I clearly on one extreme right now with, uh, with sort of unlimited taxation, but do you have a perspective on that? Cause I know it's not really more than, you know, total focus of yours. Yeah, I, I guess two reactions to that. Um, one is that um, state constitutions do have limits on taxation. Your own state um, uh, passed, uh, I think it was Prop 209 years ago that limits property taxation. It's interesting, um, basically as the states put their own constitutions together and especially as our country moved west, they sought to improve upon the national constitution. There are uh, no structural limits to taxation in, in, or few structural limitations on taxation in the 
national constitution, but many states do have them. The other is the, is the right to travel. Um, and we are living in a federalist era right now where we have uh, marijuana federalism, we have abortion federalism, we have uh, COVID federalism, we have states doing, uh, engaging in very, very different sets of policies. And uh, one of the most essential rights that we have as Americans is to vote with our feet. Um, I think Doug was, was talking about going to see uh, hopefully we don't have to do that, um, that we'll be able to preserve our, our basic freedoms right here in the United States. But I can see um, every day uh, new California license plates in my state of Arizona, and people are voting with their wheels in that case uh, to leave one state uh, for, for a state that they think um, offers a, a brighter future. Well... I know that is a fact. <laughs> this, this year alone, uh, I, I think we've had three donors who've left California for Arizona, two who've left for Texas, and um, three who've left, left for Galt's Galt's in Colorado. So, uh, <laughs> but you know, just, just as in Venezuela, you know, we just released My Name is Venezuela, my Spanish teacher is in uh, Venezuela and all of his fam family is in the diaspora and other countries. You know, you do need, you're gonna need one person to, to stay behind and uh, go down with the ship. So I, at the moment, am volunteering <laughs> for that. But, um, but otherwise, uh, I will be there in Arizona. And I hope all of you, uh, first of all, join me in thanking Justice Bullock for taking this time out of his extremely busy uh, schedule as a justice and as a teacher and as a dad and as a husband and as an author of a, of a new book. Uh, but I, I hope, um, hope to see Clint again soon, IRL, in real life. And I hope to see a lot of you guys uh, at the gala. It's a week away in Malibu, uh, in California. It's going to be just beautiful. Um, and then also we'll have a virtual component. So I'd love to see you there. And uh, Clint, so wonderful to see you and learn. I can't believe after all these years, still learning things about you. <laughs> it's been great to be with you, Jennifer. Thanks to those who have joined us today and for the great questions as well. Thank you. Okay. We'll see you guys later. Take care. Thanks. Thanks, Clint. Bye. Thank you.